The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 119. Segregation hasn't ended. We've segregated our world into these different things based on the body. And when we can welcome these parts of ourselves back in, in wholeness, and celebrate the diversity, it heals something. Tara Tang is an embodiment coach who works in the intersections of spirituality and sexuality. She spent over 10 years working to advance the socioeconomic status of women, to diminish sexual violence and end human trafficking alongside collaborative work with community stakeholders, lawmakers, and organizations. Her advocacy has helped to pass new laws in Canada that protect victims of human trafficking, and she's established Canada's first municipal action plan to combat human trafficking. Beyond her work, Tara is a TEDx speaker, a former Miss Canada, and was named Canada's Woman of the Year in 2011. She's one of the Globe and Mail's top 25 most transformational Canadians. She received an International Heroes Award from the Joy Smith Foundation, as well as the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in recognition of her vast human rights work. I am so excited to have Tara on the show today. I've been following her on Instagram ever since we connected over my book, and and the work that Tara is doing in this world is stunning. I mean, you can hear it just from that intro, but wait until you hear her. (laughs) We're talking today about embodiment and how embodiment cannot be separated from intersectionality. It's so good. I'll just let her define all of that. No announcements today, so let's go ahead and dive in. Tara, hi, welcome. Hi, how are you? I am well. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I'm so glad we're doing this. Yeah. So so to start, this is a question I ask everyone. How do you identify and how has your faith helped form that identity? Yeah, so I identify as a bisexual, biracial Asian woman, a first-generation Asian-Canadian woman. I am a demisexual, sapiosexual, polyamorous, uh, divorced, single mama of two, kind of Christian mystic recovering from evangelicalism and purity culture, and a passionate lover of 
justice and people. Actually, it's it's in my name. My Cantonese name is Oikwan, which means loves groups of people or loves people groups or loves community, depending on how you translate it. And if there's anything that's just at the core of who I am and how I identify, that's it. It's literally written into my name. I love people. I love community. And I want to do everything that I can to uphold these beautiful communities and the people within them. I'm so curious. Like, I mean, you mentioned Christian, mystic. Like, how does all of that fit in with with this? Yeah, I mean, it's been a journey. I um, so I should back up. I'm also the daughter of a Southern Baptist pastor, <laughs> and so I grew up in the church. I grew up, you know, as a PK, a pastor's kid in the church, and uh, very much very evangelical. You know, I could be the poster child. <laughs> <laughs> for for that, um, you know, growing up with, you know, VBS in summer and teaching Sunday school and growing up in the church nursery and leading worship services and singing on the music team and being a camp counselor and all of these things. And, and over time, I've gone through multiple periods of deconstruction, whether you want to call it deconstruction or not, deconstruction, questioning. I like evolving because it feels like it feels like, yes, I am deconstructing my faith and what I believe and what my values are so that I can get to the core of it. And every time it evolves into something that's it feels like deeper with more maturity and more depth and, yeah, just more substance to it as it becomes more and more my own. And so I guess now I could say that I've landed in like kind of woo-woo-y Christian mystic, but it's probably going to continue to deepen and evolve as well as as time goes on. And, and part of my faith journey has evolved sometimes by seeing what's happening around me, and sometimes it's by what's happening within me. And so the first time that I, I went through a deconstruction period, I was probably about 15, 16 years old, and it was very much what was happening around me. And I won't go into all the details um, because other people's stories are involved in it too, but in a nutshell, I ended up walking away from the church because as a pastor's kid, I was very deeply hurt by the church. And we ended up, you know, there's a lot of church politics. There was a lot of ego and insecurity amongst the church leadership team. And my family ended up being kind of like the scapegoat. <laughs> and so we ended up leaving that church because we didn't want to continue, like, we just didn't want to continue the division that was happening there. So we just bowed out and left. But because I was raised in such a small town, I ended up having to leave my town entirely, come down to, you know, the big city. It's, there's not a lot of big cities. I'm in Canada, so there's not a lot of big cities here. <laughs> and so we moved to, you know, one of the suburbs of Vancouver, um, Canada, which is where I live now. But that whole process of being so deeply hurt by the person who was supposed to be my pastor and feeling this deep sense of betrayal as I was ripped away from my, the only home that I ever knew, both my church home, which was my whole life, and the small town community that I was raised in and all my friends and, and everything that I had planned and hoped to do there. And so, you know, feeling this deep sense of betrayal and that, you know, if this is the ugly way that Christians treat one another, I don't really want to have any part of it. And so that was my first experience in evolving and, and deconstructing and really peeling back these layers and questioning everything, just questioning everything. And I got to this point of, you know, who does Jesus say he is and what did Jesus actually do? And were these things even true? And if they were, then what are the implications for my life? And so I never left Jesus, but I definitely left 
Christianity and the church. And I ended up looking at, at all kinds of other religions. I was like, well, I'm Asian. So, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I'll study Eastern world religions and try to find some sort of sense of belonging and home in that. And then ultimately at the end of the day, it was actually Jesus and his love of justice and people and humanity and confronting systems of oppression in order to stand with those who had been marginalized by these systems of oppression. That was the heart of Jesus that captivated me and pulled me back in that I couldn't find anywhere else in these other religions. It was Jesus and his love for people and his hatred of injustice and exploitation and oppression. That was what resonated so deeply with my heart. And my faith shifted as a result. It is so interesting like I, I'm just thinking, kind of like on on a more broad level. Like like I'm hearing you say, like you so resonated with with Jesus and and this his stands against injustice and oppression. And I'm thinking about like I mean the reality that we live in a world. <laughs> like, I mean, at least here in the states, and I I know to oh, some extent too. in Canada everywhere. too. Yeah, yes, like yes, everywhere <laughs> where so much injustice is done in the name of Jesus. So I mean, I imagine that puts you in in an interesting place <laughs> to be able to say, yeah, Jesus, but not like that. <laughs> it's so true, and and that actually you you've completely pinpointed my second <laughs> series of deconstruction that I am, you know, it has been like the last maybe five years of my life because I've seen how much devastation now the church has done. It was very personal, like I said the first time, with these things swirling around me. And now it feels like I'm seeing the harm that the church has done in the name of Jesus globally right? Like my children are indigenous. And as I have been more involved in the indigenous community here and across Turtle Island, seeing the harm that was done to indigenous peoples in the name of Jesus, who was an indigenous man, it's infuriating, quite honestly, that we have weaponized Jesus amongst the people that Jesus spent the entirety of his life walking alongside, bringing people who had been marginalized by the system and wielded powerless by the system and bringing them back into the center. And yet that's, that's what I've seen the church do continue to do as the church has aligned with patriarchy and colonization, white supremacy, capitalism, these things that Jesus flipped tables over because people were being harmed. And so Jesus flipped tables over it. And yet in his name, we've now aligned these things that are so counter to who Jesus was and the work that I see Jesus doing. And so my faith as I have been questioning these things and peeling back these layers, I've I've really dived into theology and studying scripture and studying church history. And for me, that's where I've been able to make sense. Like, what happened? <laughs> How did we get here? How did we get here when Jesus was so for the people and so anti-empire and standing with people who had been marginalized and, and left powerless and who had been oppressed and colonized? And his message was so 
radical to the power structures of empire that the empire killed him in state-sanctioned violence. Like, if that isn't parallel to what we're walking today, I don't know what is. And so for me to understand and reframe my understanding of who Jesus is and scripture and what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was actually talking about has fueled my fire to see even the things that we're walking through today in a completely different light and realize that there's been so much political propaganda that has hijacked Christianity in the name of power and control. And so being able to speak truth to power when I'm able to sit back and look at all these pieces and understand how they all interact and how they most importantly impact people's lives, that has been key for me being able to reclaim my faith from the powers of colonization and patriarchy and white supremacy that exist in our world today. You do kind of a a lot of different things in, in your life. But one of the main tools that I see you using to do this work is embodiment. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Our bodies are so powerful. Our bodies are a revolution. And and they're so powerful, so much so that, again, these systems and structures and power systems of patriarchy and colonization and white supremacy capitalism have tried to use our bodies for profit for control right like you look at the system of any uh, the political system of the world that we live in i i used to work in politics <laughs> i used to work and live in ottawa and work on parliament hill i helped amend the criminal code twice i wrote the national action plan to combat human trafficking i wrote the municipal action plan to combat human trafficking and so i understand how these power systems work because i worked within them i didn't just live within them i worked within them and these power structures exist with people's bodies and the hierarchy of people's bodies and who has power and who has as access to power, who has a spot in the table, who has access to the rooms where decisions are being made, and who doesn't, who doesn't have a voice. That's how these systems work, right? And so you look at you look at the power systems um, politically around the world, socially around the world. You look at the way industries profit off of bodies, not just of the workers, but also the, the people that that they profit from, right? Consumers, right? Every industry, you look at like the beauty industry, for example, it profits off of how we feel about our bodies, how our bodies look, right? And so, and I'm saying this also as a former Miss Canada, where my body was judged on and inspected and people made decisions about it and then slot us into this hierarchy of who was at the top and who was at the bottom, right? And so these are very extreme versions of how our bodies fit into our world. But even if we don't work in politics, even if you're not doing beauty pageants or any other kind of system like that, you know, we live and exist in our day-to-day, everywhere we go, the way we navigate the world, we do so in our bodies. We can't separate ourselves from our bodies. We are our bodies. We are bodies and our bodies are us. And we are in this beautiful relationship with our bodies. But that relationship has is so disconnected. Even though we go everywhere together, we're so distanced from our bodies because we haven't seen our bodies as who we are. We treat them as tools or these things that we just have to deal with. 
We just have to suffer with sometimes. And we, we hate our bodies if they don't fit and look the way that we want them to, if they don't perform the way that we want them to. Or if because of the system that we exist in, this power structure that has been created around us, if we're not in the right body, the right color, the right sexuality, the right ability, the right height, the right shape, whatever it is, if our bodies have rendered us in the, the part of the power structure that has less access than those who have more access to power or is seen as more preferable, then we feel this disconnection from our body or we feel that our bodies need to be performative to maintain our place on the hierarchy, right? And so when I look at the, these issues of injustice in the world today, We have to do so through the lens of embodiment because every injustice that happens in the world begins with the body. Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, etc. Go down the line. Every single one begins with the body and how our bodies are perceived based on the hierarchy and the power structure that we exist in. And so when we want to talk about dismantling these things that are oppressive, we have to do so in a way that is both us embodied and paying attention to what is happening in our bodies, whether it be our, the emotions that arise, the trauma that's stored in our body, all of these things. We have to pay attention to what is happening within the ecosystem of our own body, but then also see the other people that we are engaging in, in their fullness of their humanity through the lens of their body. I love that. I mean, as you're talking about it, like I I feel myself kind of getting fiery along with Mm. you. Like, yes, like, yes. (laughs) It's all these connections that need to be made so that we can actually see what we're looking at, so that we can actually move forward and do good and and heal what needs to be healed and fix what needs to be fixed and overturn and dismantle what needs to be overturned so that we can move forward in healing and wholeness and the goodness that that is there for us if we are willing to do this work. And it's hard, but it's so important. Yeah. And I imagine, Tara, like it's one thing to kind of talk about, like as you and I are doing. And and I imagine it's it's another, I mean, I know this from my own experience too. It's another to like actually do it, right? Yes. Like <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and I wonder like what your even your journey has been with that. Because I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm guessing there was a journey there that you didn't just kind of come out of the womb, like fully embodied and <laughs> you're ready to do this work. Like, <laughs> Well, yes and no. Like, I think that I think because, again, I'm a mother of two young children. And so when I see my children, especially my oldest is starting to now look around him as he is going to school. Now he's in grade one. And so he's six years old and he's starting to notice the structure around him. He doesn't understand the fullness of the way that our world works as no six-year-old does and shouldn't. But he's starting to look around even within the ecosystem of his class and his school and understand, oh, like there are some structures here, right? There's there's ways that we interact. And some of it, it's not all bad either. Some of it is like, oh, like we treat one another with kindness, right? But But the way that we interact with one another, he's starting to learn some of these social cues right now. And all of them really begin with the body, right? And even if they don't begin with our body, they impact our bodies, right? Because we navigate the world in our bodies all day long. 
my daughter is four. And so she's still very much embodied. And because she listens to the way that I speak and part of the way that I intentionally want to raise her to, to continue that healthy, connected relationship with her body and my son throughout the entirety of their life as much as we can. I hear the language that she's picking up for me that she's using. She'll tell me, mom, my body is really tired right now. And she's learning to listen and notice what's happening in her body. It's like, it's time for her to go to sleep. <laughs> She'll come up to me and cuddle. And she says, mom, I just want to be close to you right? Because she's craving connection. And she says, my body is tired. My body's telling me this. My body's telling me that. This hurts in my body. When my kids come to me crying, I'll ask them, what happened? Did, did your body get hurt or did your feelings get hurt? And then they're learning to notice what's happening in their body. Is it physical pain or is, does their heart hurt, right? And they're able to learn how to articulate it. When I see my children playing, you know, we're going into summertime soon and I see them playing on the beach, not caring how they look. Their cute little bellies are hanging out of their bathing suits and they're they're running full force down the field, right? Like there's nothing in them that is inhibited. They are in the moment, in their body, present. They're rolling down the grassy hills like they are in their bodies and they're not caring who looks at them while they run and they play and they experience the fullness of their body and the fullness of their life. Children are embodied. But over time, through that system, the peer pressure, the comments that we hear people make, the comments that our parents make about our bodies, the things, the messages that we consume from the internet, from, from a commercial, from viewing a magazine, from hearing somebody else's conversation in passing, all of these things swirling around us change the way that we have our relationship with our bodies the way we perceive our bodies and other people's bodies. I mean, they say racism is something that is learned. It's not something that we're born with, right? And so our understanding of bodies shift and change over time, which is why I think it's so important for us to come back into that relationship with our bodies and to be able to see the, the bodies of others in the fullness of their humanity. Because when we can do that, then we can understand both the wonder and beauty of bodies and also the complexity of bodies as well, too. You know, every time that you touch the body, you touch every story that that person has ever held, every memory, every experience woven into the fabric of their bodies, because our bodies remember things. Our bodies store memories, our bodies store trauma, but our, our bodies also store goodness and hope and celebration. And you're right. Like you said, it is something different to know these things cognitively in our minds, intellectually in our brains. And it's a completely different thing for us to know something in our bodies, right? You think muscle memory. There are places when I drive my son to school, my body knows where to go. <laughs> right? Like yeah. my mind knows, okay, we're going to this little community. This is where we're going for school. But my body knows how to get there. And so that's just one beautiful, simple example that I think we all can resonate of what it is like to know something in our bodies. And so even for me to go back to these things of how do we you know, decolonize? How do we, how do we um, speak truth to oppressive power? Right? For me, reclaiming some of these parts of myself that I had pushed aside or didn't even know were there because, you know, like, for example, for me being able to reclaim my queerness, 
and acknowledge, oh, I'm bisexual. I had never even questioned this before because I was attracted to who I was supposed to be attracted to. So I had never even questioned that there was this whole other world of possibility, right? And so reclaiming these things or even reclaiming that my Asian-ness is such a big part of who I am. Reclaiming these parts of who we are, my body knows it in a different way when I am experiencing it, when I am in my body and reclaiming these parts of myself and becoming more embodied rather than being disembodied because I have disconnected and disassociated and pushed these pieces of myself away from me in shame, in fear, because of trauma, because somebody else told me that it was not okay. When I welcome these pieces of myself back in, my sexuality, my racial identity, all these beautiful pieces of who I am, that's when I can heal these little fragments of who I am and experience goodness and wholeness. And I feel like this is what we need to do on a, on a personal level, but also on a global level. All of these things, these different camps that we've literally segregated ourselves into. Segregation hasn't ended. We've segregated our world into these different things based on the body. And when we can welcome these parts of ourselves back in, in wholeness, and celebrate the diversity, it heals something. And we can see the goodness, the goodness that our body knows. You know, there's a reason why we're all walking around with tension in our bodies right now. I asked my community on Instagram last week, and I don't know when we're going to release this, but at the time of recording, this is a couple days after the guilty verdict for the George Floyd trial. And so I asked my community what was happening in their bodies as we are responding to these things that are very traumatic. And there were more shootings that same week. And it is traumatic for our bodies, for all of us. And so I was asking us, what is happening in our bodies? And everyone was saying, I can feel this tension. I can feel this grief, frustration, this outpouring of emotion, because that's what our bodies are meant, how we're meant to respond to these horrific acts of injustice against humanity, against bodies, against lives, against people, right? Our bodies are telling us there's something in our world right now that is not right. And on the flip side, even you were saying through this conversation, oh, I'm feeling activated. I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling fired up with the things that I'm hearing you say because there's something in your body that is saying, oh, this is, this is true. This is good. This gives me hope. This is worth fighting for. Our body knows goodness. Our body is a truth teller. Our body has never lied to us. And when we can come back into relationship with our bodies and notice the way that our body speaks to us, that's where we can find our way back home. Have you heard something on Queerology that's made a big impact on your life? Do you now follow one of my guests because you've met them here? Because of the format of Queerology, you get to meet people in a way that lets you relate and connect. There's something uniquely personal and intimate about the conversations that happen here. If this is something you've experienced, then help me keep these conversations going by making a financial gift and becoming a Queerology Active Listener. You'll get access to the Active Listeners Facebook group right away, a place for all of us to continue these conversations throughout the week. 
All you need to do is jump over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose your gift amount and you'll be an active listener. It's really easy. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthias Roberts. I really look forward to meeting you in the Facebook group. I imagine that, I mean, you're talking about these systems of oppression and and white supremacy and capitalism and, and racism, like all of these different things. I imagine, Tara, that there's a cost to embodiment based upon particularity. Like for me to be more embodied in my queerness, I, I've noticed that. Like there, there's a cost as I become more visibly queer. But that, I mean, that's in some ways, that's something I'm even choosing into. Whereas for you, like based on the particularity of your face and your body, to actually step into that more, I imagine there's risk, there's there's danger, <laughs> there's there's cost there to be embodied. Yeah, sometimes it puts me into the line of danger more. And depending on who we are in the vantage point that we stand in and where we are on this hierarchy that was created by the structure and system of power, we can feel that more, right? One of the things that is coming to mind was in 2011, I did undercover investigative work into Southeast Asia when I was working with anti-trafficking organizations. And so because of the nature of my body, of my heritage and ethnicity, my size, who I am, the fact that I am born as a woman, like assigned female, right, into a, a female body. So I would be trained to go along with people who were born into a very different body that were of tall, European, middle-aged, male. And I was basically like, not exactly the bait, but when we would go in and we would be all wired up with cameras, because I'm half Asian and Southeast Asian, I would go in pretending to be silent and submissive. And I was just the girlfriend that had been rented for the weekend alongside these tourists who were in Southeast Asia for the purposes of buying sex. And we would collect data and then they would pass it off to the other people in our team and the authorities and they would review everything and they would decide, you know, where they would intervene, where there were cases of exploitation and where there wasn't, right? Where people were being harmed and where they weren't. But I remember through that whole experience having to stay completely calm while my heart was beating so fast and so afraid as we are going undercover into these brothels and red light district and gang run establishments and being put into the line of danger in these situations. Or here when I'm walking down the street as a single mother with my children and trying to keep my children and I safe, right? Like there's so many different times where our bodies put us into the line of danger, there's also so many times when our bodies can be and who we are and the intersections of who we are can be the thing that makes us stand up and speak with authority and with power because those intersections that we live in and the vantage points that we come from matter. And because those voices have been silenced, it's powerful when those voices speak and speak truth to power. Right. And so you're right. Sometimes when we express our queerness, it makes us a target. And at the same time, we choose this 
sometimes because, or I choose this, and maybe you do too, or other people who are listening, I choose this because I know that that representation is part of building the world that I want to live in. And I want my children to live in and my children's children to live in. And even though it does come at a cost to me, it is worth it because it is speaking truth to power in the way that I show up in the fullness of my queer, biracial, bisexual, polyamorous (laughs) authenticity in the fullness of my humanity walking down the street and that counter normity flies in the face of the status quo. And so again, my body is a revolution. My body is resistance to patriarchy and capitalism and colonization and white supremacy and these things that sought to own and control me so that they could sit at the top of the hierarchy of power. I'm reclaiming them and saying, fuck you. This is who I am. And this is the fullness of my humanity. (laughs) And yes, it's powerful. And if you are threatened because it threatens your place in the system, you should feel threatened because we are dismantling that system because that system does harm. And that system has turned us into objects, into things that are feeding the system of power rather than people to be embraced and fully known and fully loved in the fullness of our humanity. So yes, there is a cost, and it does put us in the line of fire sometimes, and it is dangerous, but it's important and it's necessary. Yeah. I I saw on your Instagram, you posted a few weeks ago, like you cannot separate embodiment from intersectionality. And I mean, I'm hearing as you say this, like, I mean, it's just woven throughout everything you're saying. Like when we step into our bodies, we cannot separate those things out, whatever our intersectionality is, but also the systems that we're a part of. It just, the locus, I mean, you're saying this, the locus is our bodies. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because I see a lot of people doing really great work towards sexual liberation, for example, right? And I'm so grateful for it. But a piece that I often find is missing is that if we want to be liberated, and this can apply to to anything, liberation on any part of this, not just sexual liberation, but when we want to work towards liberation, we must talk about the barriers to that and all of those are intertwined with embodiment and the political power structures that are profiting off of that exploitation today. I mean, one of the things that I have worked with when I'm working with clients as an embodiment coach, I hear often people saying all the time, I felt like people were trying to push me into this box or trying to push me into this box or trying to push me into this box. I had to be a certain way. I had to talk a certain way. I had to dress a certain way. I had to fit into this box that was too small for me. And so we sit back and we, at, we peel back all of these things and we ask these questions and we try to look at it from different vantage points and try to understand, okay, well, who profits off of you being in that box? Who profits off of your exploitation? Who profits off of your oppression in that box? And whose voice is, are you hearing when you're saying, oh, I just, I feel this like tension and turmoil and there's this voice that's saying this to me. Whose voice is speaking to you? And when we peel that back, we can go, oh, It's a voice of fear, maybe. It's a voice of insecurity, maybe. Or maybe it's a voice of patriarchy that is seeking to control. Maybe 
it's the voice of white supremacy that is telling me I'm not enough. Or maybe it's telling me I'm better than someone else. Whatever it is, we can start to see these things for what they really are. We can speak truth to power. We can reclaim our bodies. We can reclaim the fullness of who we are. You're you're preaching a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I am a preacher. <laughs> it just looks like a very different church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so, so you've mentioned a couple times you're polyamorous. I am polyamorous. Yes, I'd love to hear about that. That's a very <laughs> open-ended question, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just yeah, it's counter-normativity. It just seems to be my lot in life. The more yeah. that I see these things, <laughs> um, but that's okay. It's been such a beautiful thing for me to discover, and. The thing that I found is in the same way that, like, I'm bisexual no matter who I'm in a relationship with, right? And I really feel for people who are, you know, bisexual or pansexual. And if you're in, like, straight-passing relationships, for example, and yet this is still a huge part of who you are. And I know this is so common. And so... I found that my me being polyamorous is the same way. Even if I am only in a relationship with one person, I'm still polyamorous. It's still part of who I am, and I can't separate myself from that any more than I can separate myself from my bisexuality, right? It's a part of who I am. And so for me, when I, I didn't even know that this was an option. I didn't even know that there was such a word, that there was such a thing, and that it's not, oh, just a lifestyle choice in the same way that our queerness is not something we choose. This is just part of who we are. It's part of how I am wired. I can choose to be in a relationship with one person if I want to, but this is part of who I am and it always will be. And so for me, um, the time that I have been polyamorous in my life has just been so beautiful and so nourishing and so life-giving. And it's taught me so much about loving people and also honoring myself and how to have healthy embodied boundaries, how to speak up for what I need and to speak up for what I want and to learn to listen to my partners and to learn to to realize that nobody belongs to you. And this, I think we all know this on some level, but when we've grown up in a mononormative culture that this has been presented as the only option, we often start to say, oh, this is, this person is mine. And so I've learned that that is never the case. And so to cherish cherish the time and the memories and the experience and everything that that person and I choose to share together, but not that I am entitled to it, to them or to who they are. And so that it that shifts my relationship in the way that it is a gift to be shared and to be experienced rather than something that is entitled to me. And so that's been one of the really beautiful things that I have gained through my time being polyamorous since I discovered that this is part of who I am. It's allowed me also to um, connect with people without expectation. You know, when you're in a mononormative culture, there's this like, they call it the relationship escalator, right? And you kind of go through these motions of, and, and it, it sometimes it very much comes from this is the next step in our relationship because I desire it and we desire it. And this is what we're choosing for us. And sometimes we're just kind of going with the flow and it can go from like, you know, we're seeing each other and we're talking to now we're dating and let's move in together. And before you know it, you have a dog and you have a cat and you have children and you, and you know, you just, you go up the escalator and you go, you at, you take the next step as we call it. 
right? Let's get engaged now. Let's get married. Let's have children. Let's have a family. Let's settle down. And you just go through this relationship escalator where when I have had multiple partners, they all kind of have their own timeline and there's no expectation. And for me personally, the way that I approached polyamory is has been solo polyamory. And so rather than having, sometimes people do hierarchy polyamory, which for me doesn't align with my values because I'm trying to dismantle hierarchies in the world, but no shade to people who that's the way that they like to practice polyamory. That's fine. It just doesn't align with me. So for me, rather than having a primary and you know, other partners, I'm my own primary. I'm my own anchor partner because I don't like the words primary, secondary, because I never want somebody to feel secondary. When somebody is with me, they are with me and I am with them. And I learn to be present in that moment. And so, you know, these are things that I can learn within monogamy as well. But the experiences of being polyamorous have taught me such beautiful, wonderful things of how to love people without, not without attachment, because it's not that we're cold or disconnected or detached from one another. There has been depth and commitment and flourishing and growth and so much beautiful discovery and and real connection and commitment to the people that I have been in relationship with. It's not surface level by any means, but it has allowed me to realize that they are their own people and I am my own people and there are boundaries and there are needs to be expressed and how to advocate for myself and how to listen and how to have boundaries when necessary and most importantly, how to cherish each moment as a gift. And these are things that we can, doesn't matter what, if people are listening, doesn't matter what relationship framework they exist in. All of these things are valid, polyamory, monogamy, monogamish, wherever you are. These are beautiful things that we can learn and take value from and, and bring into our own relationships so that we are honoring the wholeness of people's humanity in our relationships as well. It is so interesting, Tara. Like, the, I mean, this will not be any news to you, <laughs> but, but like, as I'm listening, I am not hearing anything about sex right and i think like even in queer culture at least some of the circles that i run in there's still this lingering idea that you're polyamorous because you want to be able to have sex with a lot of different right. people mm-hmm. and i mean as you're talking <laughs> you haven't mentioned that once it's all about relationality and sure sex is a part of it right like not to like separate that out but the relationality is really what i'm hearing you talk about yeah so there's ethical non-monogamy which is this umbrella term for anything that is ethical non-monogamy really it describes itself well and polyamory is different polyamory isn't it's really about many loves polyamory polyamore right it's about depth it's about relationships it's about loves yes sex can be part of that also people can be asexual and yet in a romantic relationship you know those things can exist as well too and polyamory can be a beautiful framework where some of those relationships exist as well and have the freedom to flourish as they need to and so yeah it really is about relationships it really is about people it really is about connection and and i know that the stereotype out there is that we're all just having sex and we have all these different sex partners and yeah sometimes that's the case but more than anything to be very honest there's just a lot of talking that's happening (laughs) there 
was a lot of talking. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about me? Working through stuff because sometimes there's multiple partners in our, you know, sometimes people call it a polycule because of the way that a molecule branches off into different forms. And that's super cool and nerdy. And I nerd out on a lot of different things, but I really like to call it constellations, these relationship constellations. And because there are these beautiful little network of stars, it feels like. And that just rings true to me. But you know, these things are like ecosystems as well, too. Or like a, a star mobile above a, a baby's crib. You pull on one string and everything kind of has to adjust. And so our relationship networks within polyamory are like this as well, too. So we spend a lot of time just talking about our feelings, <laughs> which has had beautiful value in and of itself as well, too, quite honestly. And it has been something that has taught me so many embodiment practices to be able to understand, oh, what is happening in my body right now. What's happening in my body right now? And, and I say this to my clients all the time, we cannot come at that question with judgment. If you come at that question with judgment of what is happening in my body right now, you're going to reach a dead end. If you come at that question with, huh, what's happening in my body right now? Everything is different. Totally different. Totally different. Now we can actually have the conversation because we've opened up space for the conversation. And so for me being able to bring my full embodied self into my relationships, all relationships, any relationships, including my platonic relationships, I have two platonic life partners that I, because I, when I was in polyamory, I'm like, oh, I I can have platonic life partners too. I have two, I have two wives and they're amazing. They are my best friends. But the depth that we have in our relationship cannot be encompassed by the word best friend, cannot be encompassed by the word sister. They are my wives. I make life decisions with them. We co-mother together. They are my wives. They are my life partners. And so can we normalize that? Can we normalize intimacy with our friends? Can we like dismantle the hierarchy that only puts your significant other on top and everybody else is secondary? No, we can have life-giving, nourishing intimacy with everybody else in our lives. And they don't have to be the one that we're sleeping with or we're living with. Like it can, it can be anybody that you have that connection with. I have beautiful intimacy with the friends in my life. And it's sad because we're still living in COVID times, but I can't wait to just be able to cuddle in a, on the couch with them. Just, just can we just hold each other because you matter to me? You're important in my life. And no, you're not my partner. Well, there's nothing sexual that's happening here, but I value you and I love you and I want to take care of you and I want to brush your hair and feed you and hold you right now (laughs) because you matter to me, right? And so, so much of this is, again, how do we meet people in the fullness of our humanity? And sometimes it just means taking a step back and, you know, maybe there's a different way of doing things than how we've always done them. It sounds very queer to me in like the fullness of that word like whether or not someone is kind of relationally wired towards polyamory or ethical non-monogamy or or monogamy because i think i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i think i'm parsing out as you're saying as you're talking about this like it certainly is a wiring it's a way you're wired yes it's it's who i am i mean i'm in a monogamous relationship right now but I am still polyamorous in who I am. That will never change. Just like if I'm in a straight passing relationship right now, I am still bisexual. 
And we can't look at these things because we don't know, you know, we don't know how people identify. So I think that these things are just, it's, again, it's desegregating ourselves and coming back together in wholeness. We're still doing that work today. And it wasn't that long ago that within the framework of North America, there was legal segregation. But we're still segregated in our communities, in our bodies, and in our lives today. Yeah, even for people who are like wired for monogamy, everything that you're saying, (laughs) I mean, it feels like, I mean, you talk about that kind of hierarchy of steps within like monogamous relationships. It, It almost feels like this kind of autopilot approach of like, well, we do this, we do this, we do this, and we don't even question it. And and I'm hearing you say, like, regardless of where you are, these things need to be questioned. Yes, there is space enough for your questions. Your questions are not going to lead you astray. They're not going to lead you down some slippery slope that we have to be fearful of if we take one step off the path that was predetermined for us. The path may work for some people, but it there maybe there's more. Maybe there's more that honors the fullness of our humanity. Maybe there's more than one way to do things. I mean, like, tell me if this if this is something you've heard before. Like, oh, are you guys going to move in soon? When are you guys going to get married? When are <laughs> right. you going to have a baby? There's this expectation that you move up the, the relationship escalator on a certain timeline. That may work for some people. And that's great. And we celebrate that. But maybe there's different paths for us. Is there space enough for that? Yes, there's space enough for that. There's nothing deviant about that. There's nothing that's going to harm you about that. It's good and it's making more space. And I think, you know, we hear this often and and it just, it reminds me so much about these intersections of embodiment and justice. Like this is the work we're doing here. We are stepping back and making more room. We're stepping back and making more space, more space for the fullness of your humanity, more space for your queerness, more space for my Asian-ness, more space for my children's indigenousness. <laughs> That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, more space for all of this. Can there be more space? Can there be more room? Can we feast in an open field on a long table where everyone has a seat? Like, can we make that happen? Because I feel like this is what we're doing. The more that we step back and widen the circle and step back and widen the circle and bring more people in and you do it that way. Oh, that's so cool. Can you tell me about that? Oh, show me the fullness of your humanity. And look, you are safe here. You are safe to show me the fullness of your humanity because your fullness of your humanity is celebrated here. That's what we're doing. That's the intersections of embodiment and justice. That's the work that we're doing here. We're setting that table to feast together in wide open air, in the field where all of us is celebrated. That's the work that we're doing here. Yes, there is a cost. Yes, it is hard. Yes, sometimes we're putting ourselves in the line of power. You're speaking truth to power. Sometimes there's a cost. There are places now, this is, I've been talking about this, I will never get invited back to speak at. There are places that will never hire me for a job again that I might have worked at before, that I did work at before. I will never be invited back because they're still benefiting from that system of power that we are now actively seeking to dismantle so that we can all stand in the sun in the field. Yeah, 
And like, what a gift, like as, as I'm imagining this, you know, this field that you're talking about, it, it sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Like we want to hang out there. <laughs> right. Right. And, and also there's this sense of like, not only do we get to hold on to our own embodiment and particularity, like that feels like a given in this field. Like we are who we are in the fullness of who we are. We're not erasing those things, but we also get to learn from each other and like, I mean, ask those questions. And I mean, especially with this conversation about like polyamory, like that's where my mind was going of like, of everything that you're saying that we can learn from that everyone can learn from of like, you don't have to be in a possessive, jealous relationship, right? Like, <laughs> or whatever else it is. And maybe when jealousy comes up in your body, you can look at it and go, huh, what's happening here? Right? Again, we're not looking at it with judgment. We're looking at it with curiosity. Be like, what is my body trying to speak to me right now? Maybe there's a lesson that can be learned here. Maybe there's more that I've never paid attention to. Again, making more room for it. We don't have to look at our jealousy as something we have to fear or prevent or run away from. It's just our body speaking to us that there's something going on. So what if we looked at everything that way? You know, I, when I'm working with clients as an embodiment coach, a lot of the work that I do sometimes is making space for them to feel the fullness of their emotions and to not be afraid of them. Because what have we done with children from the moment that they're born? Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Shh, 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 shh. We've taught them to shut down their emotions. That is part of the fullness of their humanity. And if I were to connect it to justice as well, too, because everything can connect to embodiment and justice. For those of us, like for me as a woman, there is time if I was too emotional, I could be institutionalized. If I was too emotional, I could be burned at the stake. I'm guaranteed I would have been born, burned at the stake at a different point in time. But that's okay. I kind of take pride in that. <laughs> <laughs> but right? So like this is the way that the fullness of our humanity has been a threat to these systems of power. And the, where the intersections of embodiment and justice meet and why this work is so incredibly important, whether we're making more room, whether we are questioning and making more space in our relationships, whether we're making more space for the fullness of the expression of our sexuality, or whether we're simply allowing ourselves to feel the fullness of our emotions because that is being in our bodies and being in being fully human, like all of these things that we're having this conversation about today are a threat to the system and the structure of power that we exist in today. And it's the intersections where embodiment and justice meet. Oh, I love it. Tara, how can people uh, find your work, work with you? What, what's the best avenue for people to do that? Yeah, you can find me through my website, taratang.com. There's lots of information about these things, about justice and embodiment. If you want to work together on reclaiming your embodiment, or if you want to work at just how do we... How do we navigate the world through the lens of justice and embodiment that is honoring the fullness of our humanity? Or so many of the people that I work with, and we didn't even talk about it yet today, but because of the intersections of justice and embodiment are reclaiming the fullness of their humanity from things like purity culture, right? So many of the clients that I work with are walking through that and dismantling the way that purity culture has been wielded as a tool of oppression by the system of patriarchy 
if we're really breaking things down, that's what we're talking about. And so if any of those things resonate with your heart, or if you just want to say hey and chat, you can find me through my website, taratang.com. I'm also on all the socials at Miss Tara Tang, M-I-S-S-T-A-R-A-T-E-N-G, Instagram and Twitter, Facebook and Clubhouse and yeah, there's so many ways. I would love to connect with people. I would love to to see the fullness of your humanity. What a gift to, and a privilege to witness that. And and how can we walk through this well? How can we do life well? You know, one of the things that I've been learning as the mother of two indigenous children is the teachings of all my relations that we're all related and we're all connected and all of these things are intertwined. And so they always say we want to do this in a good way. How do we do this in a good way? How do I do my relationships in a good way? How do I do my love of God in a good way? How do I do my love of people in a good way? How do I navigate the structures and the systems and the institutions and the political powers of our world in a good way? When I flip tables when tables need to be flipped and meet Jesus in the margins the way that he did. How do I speak truth to power when that's necessary? And how do I pull these parts of myself close that I have separated because of oppression or judgment or shame so that I can live in the fullness of my embodied humanity and meet you in the fullness of your embodied humanity? And how does that change everything as we know it? Oh, so good. So good. Uh, thank you so much, Tara, for joining me. This has just been just wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's so good for me too. And I just, this is my favorite part because these things, these conversations that we have that are so important, they have the power to shift the world. And as this conversation ends, I know that everybody who has been joining us and listening to it, the next stage of the conversation begins. What do we do with this and where do we go now? And that is what lights me up because that conversation can change everything. Yes. Uh, like, let's do so it. Good. Let's go. Let's, let's go. go. Let's fucking do it. Let's go. I'll meet you in the field. Let's go, guys. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, friend. <laughs> you can connect with Tara over on her website, taratang.com. And be sure to follow her on social media at Miss Tara Tang. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye!
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.